0: Drama on One.
1: Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash
0: drama on one. Drama on One. You're listening to RTE
1: Radio 1 and now Drama on One presents The Aran Islands by John Millington Singh adapted and dramatised for radio by Joe O'Byrne. In Joe O'Byrne's elegant dramatisation of the celebrated text of Singh's account of life on the Aran Islands, Brendan Conroy and Stanley Townsend embody the many voices of island man Murtín and the man he called the Sasnach. This is The Aran Islands.
0: The steamer, which comes to Arran, sails according to the tide. And it was six o'clock this morning when we left the quay of Galway in a dense shroud of mist. A low line of shore was visible at first on the right between the movement of the waves and fog. But when we came further, it was lost sight of and nothing could be seen but the mist curling in the rigging and a small circle of foam. In about three hours, Aaron came in sight. A dreary rock appeared at first, sloping up from the sea into the fog. Then, as we drew nearer, a coast guard station and the village. A little later, I was wandering out along the one good roadway of the island, looking over low walls on either side into small flat fields of naked rock. I have seen nothing so desolate. Grey floods of water were sweeping everywhere upon the limestone. A little after midday, when I was coming back, one old half-blind man spoke to me in Gaelic. But in general, I was surprised at the abundance and fluency of the foreign tongue. I am in Aranmore sitting over a turf fire listening to a murmur of gaelic that is rising from a little public house under my room the old woman of the house had promised to get me a teacher of the language and after a while i heard a shuffling on the stairs and the old dark man i had spoken to in the morning groped his way into the room come over and sit here by the fire
1: a little after middle age I fell over a cliff and since then I have little eyesight and the tremble in my hands and head that you can see. Now, that's better.
0: We talked for many hours. He had great confidence in his own powers and talent and in the superiority of his stories over all other stories in the world.
1: I have known Sir William Wilde and taught Irish to Dr. Fink and Dr. Pedersen and given stories to Mr. Curtin of America. And that gentleman brought out a volume of his errand stories in America and made 500 pounds by the sale of them. And what do you think he did then? He wrote a book of his own stories after making that lot of money with mine and he brought them out. And the divvily halfpenny did he get for them? (laughs) Would you believe that?
0: (laughs) As we talked, he sat huddled over the fire, shaking and blind.
1: One of my children was taken by the fairies. One day a neighbor was passing, and she said when she saw it on the road, That's a fine child. Its mother tried to say, God bless it, but something choked the words in her throat. A while later, they found a wound on its neck. And for three nights, the house was filled with noises. I never wear a shirt at night but I got up out of my bed all naked as I was when I heard the noises in the house and lighted a light. But there was nothing in it. Then a dummy came and made signs of hammering nails in a coffin. The next day, the seed potatoes were full of blood and the child told his mother he was going to America and that night it died. And believe me, the fairies were in it.
0: I went out through Kalini, the poorest village in our moor, to a long neck of sand hill that runs out into the sea towards the southwest. As I lay there on the grass, the clouds lifted from the Connemara Mountains and for a moment the green undulating foreground, backed in the distance by a mass of hills, reminded me of the country near Rome. Then the dun topsail of a hooker swept above the edge of the sand hill and revealed the presence of the sea. The intense insular clearness one sees only in Ireland and after rain was throwing out every ripple in the sea and sky and every crevice in the hills beyond the bay. This evening an old man came to see me and said he had known a relative of mine who passed some time on this island 43 years ago.
1: I was standing under the pier wall, mending nets, when you came off the steamer. And I said to myself in that moment, if there was a man of the name of Singh left walking the world, it is that man yonder will be he. Ah, the island has changed since I left it to go to sea before the end of my childhood. Now I have come back to live in a bit of a house with my sister. The island is not the same at all to what it was. It's little good I can get from the people who are in it now. And anything I have to give them, they don't care to have...
0: In spite of the charm of my teacher, the old blind man I met the day on my arrival, I have decided to move on to Inishman, where Gaelic is more generally used, and the life is perhaps the most primitive that is left in Europe. I spent all this last day with my blind guide, looking at the antiquities that abound in the west and northwest of the island. We went to the north of the island to visit one of the ancient beehive dwellings that is still in perfect preservation. While we crawled in on our hands and knees and stood up in the gloom of the interior, Old Mortine took a freak of earthly humour.
1: A uh, noble person. What I would not have done if I had come in here as a young man and a young girl along with me. (laughs) (laughs) But let me now give you the Catholic theory of the fairies. When Lucifer saw himself in the glass, he thought himself equal to God. Then the Lord threw him out of heaven and all the angels that belonged to him. And while he was chucking them out, An archangel asked him to spare some of them. And those that were falling are in the air still. And have power to wreck ships. And to work evil in the world. I see. Now, when you get to Inishman, you'll have an old man to talk with you over there. And tell you stories of the fairies. But he's walking about with two sticks under him this ten year. Did ever you hear what it is goes on four legs when it is young? And on two legs after that, and on three legs when it does be old?
0: The human being himself. Uh, <laughs>
1: Master, you're a cute one. And the blessing of God be on you. Well, I'm on three legs this minute, but the old man beyond is back on four. I don't know if I'm better than the way he is. He's got his sight, and I'm only an old, dark man.
0: Early this morning, the man of the house came over for me with a four-oared curragh—that That is, a curragh with four rowers and four oars on either side, as each man uses two. And we set off a little before noon. It gave me a moment of exquisite satisfaction to find myself moving away from civilization in this rude canvas canoe of a model that has served primitive races since men first went to sea. When we set off, it was a brilliant morning of April and the green, glittering waves seemed to toss the canoe among themselves. Yet, as we drew nearer this island, a sudden thunderstorm broke out behind the rocks we were approaching and lent a momentary tumult to this still vein of the Atlantic. I am settled at last on Inish man in a small cottage with a continual drone of Gaelic coming from the kitchen that opens into my room. The kitchen itself, where I will spend most of my time, is full of beauty and distinction. The red dresses of the women who cluster round the fire on their stools give a glow of almost eastern richness, and the walls have been toned by the turf smoke to a soft brown that blends with the grey earth colour of the floor. Many sorts of fishing tackle and the nets and oilskins of the men are hung upon the walls or among the open rafters, and right overhead, under the thatch, there is a whole cowskin from which they make pampooties. The courtesy of the old woman of the house is singularly attractive and though I could not understand much of what she said, she has no English, I could see with how much grace she motioned each visitor to a chair or stool, according to his age, and said a few words to him till he drifted into our English conversation. For the moment, my own arrival is the chief subject of interest, and the men who come in are eager to talk to me. A few of the men have a curiously full vocabulary, Others know only the commonest words in English and are driven to ingenious devices to express their meaning. Of all the subjects we talk of, war seems their favorite. And the conflict between America and Spain is causing a great deal of excitement.
1: Nearly all the families have relations who have had to cross the Atlantic. And we all eat of the flour and bacon that is brought from the United States. And I tell you, if anything happened
0: to America, we'd not be able to live here any longer. Foreign languages are another favourite topic, and as these men are bilingual, they have a fair notion of what it means to speak and think in many different idioms. Most of the strangers they see on the islands are philological students, and the people have been led to conclude that linguistic studies, particularly Gaelic studies, are the chief occupation of the outside world.
1: I have seen Frenchmen and Danes, and Germans. And there must be a power of Irish books along with them. And they are reading them better than ourselves. Believe me, there are fewer few rich men now in the world who are not studying the Gaelic.
0: When I was going out this morning to walk round the island with Michael, the boy who was teaching me Irish, I met an old man making his way down to the cottage. He was dressed in miserable black clothes which seemed to have come from the mainland, and was so bent with rheumatism that at a little distance he looked more like a spider than a human being. That's Pat Duran, the storyteller old Martin told you about on the other island. Should we not turn back? He appears to be on his way to visit me. Not a bit. <laughs>
1: He'll be sitting by the fire when we come in. Let you not be afraid. There will be time enough to be talking to him by and by.
0: He was right. As I came down into the kitchen some hours later, old Pat was sitting in the chimney corner, blinking with the turf smoke. He spoke English with remarkable aptness and fluency, due, I believe, to the months he spent in the English provinces working at the harvest when he was a young man.
1: It's yourself, is it? I have been crippled by an attack of the old Hinn. The influenza? Yes, yes. Do you like stories? I do. Well, I'll tell you one in English but it would be much better if you could follow the Gaelic. There were two farmers in County Clare. One had a son, and the other, a fine, rich man, had a daughter. The young man was wishing to marry the girl, and his father told him to try and get her if he thought well, though a power of gold would be wanting to get the like of her. I will try, said the young man. He put all his gold into a bag, and then he went over to the other farm and threw in the gold in front of him. Is that all gold, said the father of the girl. All gold, said O'Connor. The young man's name was O'Connor. It will not weigh down my daughter, said the father. "'We'll see that,' said O'Connor. "'Then they put them in the scales, "'the daughter in one side and the gold in the other. "'The girl went down against the ground. "'So O'Connor took his bag and went out on the road. "'And as he was going along, He came to where there was a little man and he's standing with his back against the wall. Where are you going with the bag, said the little man. Going home, said O'Connor. Is it gold you might be wanting, said the man. It is surely, said O'Connor. Well, I'll give you what you are wanting, said the man. And we can bargain it this way. You'll pay me back in a year the gold I give you, or you'll pay me with five pounds cut of your own flesh. That bargain was made between them. The man gave a bag of gold to O'Connor, and he went back with it and was married to the young woman. And they were rich people. And he built her a grand castle on the cliffs of Clare with a window that looked out straight over the wild ocean. And one day, when he went up with his wife to look out over the wild ocean, he saw a ship coming in on the rocks and no sails on her at all. She was wrecked on the rocks. And it was tea that was in her and fine silk. O'Connor and his wife went down to look at the wreck. And when the lady O'Connor saw the silk, she said she wished a dress of it. They got the silk from the sailor. And when the captain came up to get the money for it, O'Connor asked him to come again and take his dinner with them. And they had a grand dinner. And they drank after it. And the captain was tipsy. And while they were still drinking, a letter came to O'Connor. And it was in the letter that a friend of his was dead. And that he would have to go away on a long journey. As he was getting ready, the captain came to him. Are you fond of your wife? said the captain. I am fond of her, said O'Connor. Will you make me a bet of twenty guineas? No man comes near her while you'll be away on the journey, said the captain. I will bet it, said O'Connor. And he went away. There was an old hag who sold small things on the road near the castle and the lady O'Connor allowed her to sleep up in a room in a big box. The captain went down on the road to the old hag. For how much will you let me sleep one night in your box, said the captain. For no money at all would I do such a thing, said the hag. For ten guineas, said the captain. Ten guineas, said the hag. For twelve guineas, said the captain. Not for twelve guineas, said the hag. For fifteen guineas, said the captain. For fifteen, I will do it, said the hag. Then she took him up and hid him in the box. When night came, the Lady O'Connor walked up into her room, and the captain watched her through a hole that was in the box. He saw her take off her two rings and put them on a kind of a board that was over her head like a chimney piece, and take off her clothes, except her shift, and go up into her bed. As soon as she was asleep, the captain came out of his box and he had some means of making a light, for he lit the candle. He went over to the bed where she was sleeping, without disturbing her at all, or doing any bad thing, and he took the two rings off the board and blew out the light and went down again into the box.
0: He paused for a moment, and a deep sigh of relief rose from the men and women who had crowded in while the story was going on till the kitchen was filled with people. As the captain was coming out of his box, the girls, who had appeared to know no English, stopped their spinning and held their breath with expectation. When
1: O'Connor came back, the captain met him and told him that he had been a knight in his wife's room and gave him the two rings. O'Connor gave him the 20 guineas of the bet. Then he went up into the castle and he took his wife up to look out of the window over the wild ocean. And while she was looking, he pushed her from behind, and she fell down over the cliff and into the sea. An old woman was on the shore, and she saw her falling. And she went down then to the surf and pulled her out all wet and in great disorder. And she took the wet clothes off her and put on some old rags belonging to herself. When O'Connor had pushed his wife from the window, he went away into the land. After a while, the Lady O'Connor went out searching for him. And when she had gone here and there a long time in the country, she heard that he was raping in a field with sixty men. She came to the field, and she wanted to go in, but the gate man would not open the gate for her. Then the owner came by, and she told him her story. He brought her in, and her husband was there, reaping, but he never gave any sign of knowing her. She showed him to the owner, and he made the man come out and go with his wife. When the lady O'Connor took him out on the road where there were horses and they rode away and when they came to the place where O'Connor had met the little man he was there on the road before them have you my gold on you? said the man I have not said O'Connor then you'll pay me the flesh of your body said the man They went into a house and a knife was brought and a clean white cloth was put on the table and O'Connor was put upon the cloth. Then the little man was going to strike the lancet into him when says Lady O'Connor, Have you bargained for five pounds of flesh? For five pounds of flesh, said the little man. Have you bargained for any drop of his blood, said Lady O'Connor for no blood, said the man. Cut out the flesh, said Lady O'Connor. But if you spill one drop of his blood, I'll put that through you. And she put a pistol to his head. The little man went away, and they saw no more of him. When they got home to their castle, they made a great supper and they invited the captain and the old hag and the old woman that had pulled the Lady O'Connor out of the sea. And after they had eaten well, the Lady O'Connor began and she said they would all tell their stories. Then she told how she had been saved from the sea and how she had found her husband. Then the old woman told her story. The way she had found the Lady O'Connor wet and in great disorder and had brought her in and put on her some more rags of her own. The Lady O'Connor asked the captain for his story. But he said they would get no story from him. Then she took her pistol out of her pocket and she put it on the edge of the table and she said that anyone that would not tell his story would get a bullet into him then the captain told the way he had got into the box and come over to her bed without touching her at all and had taken away the rings then the lady O'Connor took the pistol and shot the hag through the body and they threw her over the cliff and into the sea. That is my story.
0: It gave me a strange feeling of wonder to hear this illiterate native of a wet rock in the Atlantic telling a story that is so full of European associations. The incident of the faithful wife takes us beyond Cymbeline to the sunshine of the Arno and the gay company who went out from Florence to tell narratives of love. The other portion, dealing with the pound of flesh, has a still wider distribution reaching to Persia and Egypt. While I am walking with Michael, someone often comes to me to ask the time of day. Few of the people, however, are sufficiently used to modern time to understand in more than a vague way the convention of the hours. And when I tell them what o'clock it is by my watch, they are not satisfied and ask,
1: But how long has left me before the twilight?
0: The general knowledge of time on the island depends, curiously enough, on the direction of the wind. Nearly all the cottages are built like this one with two doors opposite each other, the more sheltered of which lies open all day to give light to the interior. If the wind is northerly, the south door is opened, and the shadow of the doorpost moving across the kitchen floor indicates the hour. As soon, however, as the wind changes to the south, the other door is opened, and the people who never think of putting up a primitive dial are at a loss. When the wind is from the north, the old woman manages my meals with fair regularity, but on the other days she often makes my tea at three o'clock instead of six. If I refuse it, she puts it down to simmer for three hours in the turf, and then brings it in at six o'clock, full of anxiety to know if it is warm enough. The old man warmed to the theme of my watch and time.
1: Well, you should bring us a clock when you go away. We'd like to have something from you in the house. The way we wouldn't forget you. And wouldn't a clock be as handy as another thing? And we'd be thinking of you whenever we'd look on its face.
0: Then Pat told me a story of the unfaithful wife. At the beginning of this story, he gave me a long account of what had made him be on his way to Dublin on that occasion and told me about all the rich people he was going to see in the finest streets of the city.
1: One day, I was travelling on foot from Galway to Dublin and the darkness came on me and I, ten miles from the town, I was wanting to pass the night in. Then a hard rain began to fall. And I was tired walking, so when I saw a sort of a house with an old roof on it up against the road, I got in the way the walls would give me shelter. As I was looking around, I saw a light in some trees, two perches off. And thinking any sort of a house would be better than where I was, I got over a wall and went up to the house to look in at the window. I saw a dead man laid on a table, and candles lighted, and a woman watching him. I was frightened when I saw him, but it was raining hard, and I said to myself, if he was dead, he couldn't hurt me. Then I knocked on the door, and the woman came and opened it. Good evening, ma'am, says I. Good evening, kindly stranger, says she. Come in out of the rain. Then she took me in and told me your husband was after dying on her and she was watching him that night. But it's thirsty you'll be, stranger, says she. Come into the parlor. Then she took me into the parlor and it was a fine, clean house. And she put a cup with a saucer under it on the table before me with fine sugar and bread. When I'd had a cup of tea, I went back into the kitchen where the dead man was lying. And she gave me a fine new pipe off the table with a drop of spirits. Stranger, says mm-hmm. she, would you be afeared to be alone with himself? Uh, not a bit in the world, ma'am. I, he that's dead can do no hurt. Then she said she wanted to go over and tell the neighbors the way her husband was after dying on her, and she went out and locked the door behind her. I smoked one pipe, and I leaned out and took another off the table. I was smoking it with my hand on the back of my chair. The way you are yourself this minute, God bless you. And I looking on the dead man. When he opened his eyes as wide as myself and looked at me. Don't be afraid, stranger, said the dead man. I'm not dead at all in the world. Come here and help me up and I'll tell you all about it. Well, I went up and took the sheet off of him. And I saw that he had a fine, clean shirt on his body and fine flannel drawers. He sat up then and says he, I've got a bad wife, stranger, and I let on to be dead the way I'd catch her goings on. Then he got two fine sticks he had to keep down his wife and he put them at each side of his body and he laid himself out again as if he was dead. In half an hour, his wife came back. And a young man along with her. Well, she gave him his tea. And she told him he was tired. And he would do right to go and lie down in the bedroom. The young man went in. And the woman sat down to watch by the dead man. A while after, she got up. And stranger, says she, I'm going in to get the candle out of the room. I'm thinking the young man will be asleep by this time. She went into the bedroom, but the devil a bit of her came back. Then the dead man got up, and he took one stick, and he gave the other to myself. We went in and saw them lying together with her head on his arm. The dead man hit him a blow with a stick, so that the blood out of him leapt up and hit the gallery. That is my story.
0: The other day the men of this house made a new field. The old man and his eldest son dug out the clay and Michael packed it in panniers for transport to a flat rock in a sheltered corner of their holding where it was mixed with sand and seaweed and spread out in a layer upon the stone. Most of the potato growing of the island is carried out in fields of this sort for which the people pay a considerable rent and if the season is at all dry their hope of a fair crop is nearly always disappointed. It is now nine days since rain has fallen and the people are filled with anxiety, although the sun has not yet been hot enough to do harm. The people have taken advantage of this dry moment to begin the burning of the kelp and all the islands are lying in a volume of grey smoke. The work needed to form a ton of kelp is considerable. The seaweed is collected from the rocks after the storms of autumn and winter, dried on fine days, and then made up into a rick where it is left till the beginning of June. It is then burnt in low kilns on the shore, an affair that takes from 12 to 24 hours of continuous hard work. The low flame-edged kiln, sending out dense clouds of creamy smoke, with a band of red and grey clothed workers moving in the haze, and usually some petticoated boys and women who come down with drink, forms a scene with as much variety and colour as any picture from the East. The men feel in a certain sense the distinction of their island, and show me their work with pride. One of them said to me yesterday,
1: I'm thinking you never saw the like of this work before this
0: day. That is true, I never did. Hey,
1: that didn't. Isn't it a great wonder that you've seen France and Germany and the Holy Father? And never seen a man making kelp till you come to Inish May.
0: Old Pat Durand continues to come up every day to talk to me. And at times I turn the conversation to his experiences of the fairies. He has seen a good many of them, he says, in different parts of the island, especially in the sandy districts north of the slip. They are about a yard high, with caps like the peelers pulled down over their faces. Yesterday he took me aside and said he would tell me a secret he had never told to any person in the world. Take a sharp needle and stick it in under the collar of
1: your coat. And not one of them will be able to have power on you. But listen to this story I'm going to tell you. A poor widow had three sons and a daughter. One day, when her sons were out looking for sticks in the wood, they saw a fine speckled bird flying in the trees. The next day, they saw it again. And the eldest son told his brothers to go and get sticks by themselves, for he was going after the bird. He went after it and brought it in with him when he came home in the evening. They put it in an old hen coop, and they gave it some of the meal they had for themselves. I don't know if it ate the meal, but they divided what they had themselves. They could do no more. That night, it laid a fine spotted egg in the basket. The next night, it laid a mother. At that time, its name was on the papers, and many heard of the bird that laid the golden eggs, for the eggs were of gold, and there's no lie in it. When the boys went down to the shop the next day to buy a stone of meal, the shopman asked if he could buy the bird of them. Well, it was arranged in this way. The shopman would marry the boy's sister... A poor, simple girl without a stitch of good clothes and get the bird with her. Some time after that, one of the boys sold a egg of the bird to a gentleman that was in the country. The gentleman asked him if he had the bird still. He said that the man who had married his sister was after getting it. Well, said the gentleman, The man who eats the heart of that bird will find a purse of gold beneath him every morning, and the man who eats its liver will be king of Ireland. The boy went out. He was a simple poor fellow, and told the shopman. Then the shopman brought in the bird and killed it, and he ate the heart himself, and he gave the liver to his wife. When the boy saw that, there was great anger on him, and he went back and told the gentleman. Do what I'm telling you, said the gentleman. Go down now and tell the shopman and his wife to come up here to play a game of cards with me, for it's lonesome I am this evening. When the boy was gone, he mixed a vomit and poured a lot of it into a few naggins of whiskey, and he put a strong cloth on the table under the cards. The man came up with his wife, and they began to play. The shopman won the first game, and the gentleman made them drink a sup of the whiskey. They played again, and the shopman won the second game. Then the gentleman made him drink a sup more of the whiskey. And as they were playing the third game, the shopman and his wife got sick on the cloth, and the boy picked it up and carried it into the yard, for the gentleman had let him know what he was to do. Then he found the heart of the bird, and he ate it. And the next morning, when he turned in his bed, there was a purse of gold under him. That is my story.
0: When the steamer is expected, I rarely fail to visit the boat slip, as the men usually collect when she is in the offing, and lie arguing among their currants, till she has made her visit to the South Island and is seen coming towards us. The pier on this island is also a novelty, and is much thought of as it enables the hookers that still carry turf and cattle to charge and take their cargoes directly from the shore. The water around it however is only deep enough for a hooker when the tide is nearly full and will never float the steamer, so passengers must still come to land in Currux. In bad weather, four men will often stand for nearly an hour at the top of the slip with a curragh in their hands, watching a point of rock towards the south where they can see the strength of the waves that are coming in. The instant a break is seen, they swoop down to the surf, launch their curragh, pull out to sea with incredible speed. Coming to land is attended with the same difficulty and, if their moment is badly chosen, they are likely to be washed sideways and swamped among the rocks. This continual danger, which can only be escaped by extraordinary personal dexterity, has had considerable influence on the local character, as the waves have made it impossible for clumsy, foolhardy or timid men to live on these islands. While the curricks are out, I am left with a few women and very old men who cannot row. One of these old men, whom I often talk with, is fond of telling me anecdotes, not folktales, of things that have happened here in his lifetime.
1: There was a Connacht man who killed his father with the blow of a spade when he was in passion, and then fled to this island and threw himself on the mercy of some of the people he is related to. They hid him in a hole, kept him safe for weeks, though the police came and searched for him. And he could hear their boots grinding on the stones over his head. And a reward was offered. But no man took it. And after much trouble, the man was safely shipped to America.
0: This impulse to protect the criminal is universal in the West. It seems partly due to the association between justice and the hated English jurisdiction, but more directly to the primitive feeling of these people who are never criminals, yet always capable of crime. A man
1: will not do wrong unless he is under the influence of a passion like a storm on the sea. If a man has killed his father and is already sick and broken with remorse, is there any reason why he should be dragged away by the law and killed? Such a man will be quiet all the rest of his
0: life. But would that man not need to be punished as an example to the rest of the islanders?
1: Would anyone kill his father if he was able to help it?
0: I have been down sitting on the pier till it was quite dark. I am only beginning to understand the Knights of Inishman, and the influence they have had in giving distinction to these men who do most of their work after nightfall. I could hear nothing but a few curlews and other wild fowl whistling and shrieking in the seaweed, and the low rustling of the waves. It was one of the dark, sultry nights peculiar to September, with no light anywhere except the phosphorescence of the sea and the occasional rift in the clouds that showed the stars behind them. The sense of solitude was immense. I could not see or realize my own body. I seem to exist merely in my perception of the waves and of the crying birds and of the smell of the seaweed. When I tried to come home I lost myself among the sandhills and the night seemed to grow unutterably cold and dejected as I groped among the slimy masses of seaweed and wet crumbling walls. I am back on Inishmoor, and old Martin is keeping me company again, and I am now able to understand the greater part of his Irish. He took me out today to show me the remains of some clochons, or beehive dwellings, that are left near the central ridge of the island. After I had looked at them, we lay down in the corner of a little field, filled with the autumn sunshine and the odour of withering flowers, while he told me a long folk tale, which took more than an hour to narrate. He is so blind that I can gaze at him without discourtesy. And after a while, the expression of his face made me forget to listen. The glow of childish transport that came over him when he reached the nonsense ending so common in these tales recalled me to myself.
1: They found the path and I found the puddle. They were drowned and I was found. If it's all one to me tonight... It wasn't all one to them the next night. Yet if it wasn't itself, not a thing did they lose but an old back
0: tooth. (laughs) As I led him home through the paths he described to me, it is thus we get along, lifting him at times over the low walls he is too shaky to climb, he brought the conversation to the topic they are never weary of my views on marriage. He stopped as we reached the summit of the island, with the stretch of the Atlantic just visible behind him.
1: Whisper, noble person, do you never be thinking on the young girls? The time I was a young man, the devil of one of them could I look on without wishing to marry her.
0: Ah, Martine, it's a great wonder you'd be asking me. What at all do you think of me yourself? Be that noble person, I'm thinking it's soon you'll
1: be getting married. Listen to what I'm telling you. A man who is not married is no better than an old jackass. He goes into his sister's house and into his brother's house. He eats a bit in this place and a bit in another place, but he has no home for himself like an old jackass string on the rocks.
0: I am leaving in two days and have returned to Inishman, and old Pat Duran has bidden me goodbye. He met me in the village this morning and took me into his little tent, a miserable hovel where he spends the night. I sat for a long time on his threshold while he leaned on a stool behind me near his bed and told me the last story I shall have from him, a rude anecdote not worth recording. Then he told me with careful emphasis how he had wandered when he was a young man and lived in a fine college, teaching irish to the young priests (laughs) they say on the island that he can tell as many lies as four men perhaps the stories he has learned have strengthened his imagination when i stood up in the doorway to give him god's blessing he leaned over on the straw that forms his bed and shed tears then he turned to me again lifting up one trembling hand with the mitten worn to a hole on the palm from the rubbing of his crutch and spoke with tears trickling on his face. I'll
1: not see you again. And you're a kindly man. When you come back next year, I won't be in it. I won't live beyond the winter. But listen now to what I'm telling you. Let you put insurance on me in the city of Dublin, and it's five hundred pounds you'll get on my burial.
0: (laughs) And when I came back the next year, he had indeed passed away. I have come out of an hotel full of tourists and commercial travellers to stroll along the edge of Galway Bay and look out in the direction of the islands.
1: There was once a widow living among the woods and her only son living along with her. He went out every morning through the trees to get sticks. And one day, as he was lying on the ground, he saw a swarm of flies, flying over what the cow leaves behind her. He took up his sickle, and hit one blow at them, and hit that hard that he left no single one of them living.
0: The sort of yearning I feel towards those lonely rocks is indescribably acute. This town, that is usually so full of wild human interest, seems in my present mood a tawdry medley of all that is crudest in modern life. Yet the islands are fading already, and I can hardly realize that the smell of the seaweed and the drone of the Atlantic are still moving round them. And that is my story.
1: We've been listening to The Aran Islands by John Millington Singh, adapted and dramatised by Joe O'Byrne. Stanley Townsend was John Millington Singh. Brendan Conroy played Morteen and other voices. Sound supervision was by Ciarán Cullen. And the producer was Aidan Matthews.